Okay, let's pray. We're gonna get into the book of Jude. Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus Christ, and Lord, we need you. Lord, help us to see the incredible danger of false teaching. Help us to be, just to take a sober look at the warnings that you have for us in your word here. Lord, again, we need to hear from you, and so I'm asking, I'm full of faith, that you can take your word, and in the power of your Holy Spirit, you can expose it, you can apply it, you can use it to change our lives for your glory, and so God, we just confess that we need you this morning. Lord, we don't, help us, we don't wanna be just hearers of the word. Uh, We wanna believe on your word, we wanna see it applied to our life for your glory in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so by way of quick review, okay, again, why is Jude writing the letter? We saw that in verse three. He said it was needful for him to write to God's people to exhort them that they would contend for the faith. They have to contend for the faith, why? Why do we have to strive to, to, to contend? Why do we have to make sure it's the faith that's being propagated? Well, verse four, he tells you people are creeping in unawares and their objective is to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And we see this pattern, you'll see that pattern of false teachers, um, um, point, you know, people who function as points of division, they end up functioning to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Uh, there's always a reason, there's always some excuse to fulfill what you want, what you desire in the flesh, you wanna legitimize that. You wanna continue in sin that grace may abound. And so watch for that pattern, we'll see it this morning. And then we drew from that our main point for this study and we saw that false teaching is dangerous because it leads people to rebel against God. Jude drew three parallels to, to prove that point. Parallel one, we saw the generation of Israel that God delivered, that God saved, but then later destroys that first generation coming out of the bondage of Egypt. He destroys those that are are delivered from captivity. The second parallel that we saw were the angels that sinned. And then the third parallel we saw was the sexual perversion of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then they're described in verses eight through 11. In verse eight, we find that they're filthy dreamers. That's why they defile the flesh. They can't think right, so they can't do right. Uh, they can't submit to authority. They despise dominion. They can't speak right. They speak evil of dignities. So they, they can't think in a godly way, so they can't function in a godly way. And then we saw the contrast of Michael. Here's Michael, he's an archangel. I mean, he would be a contemporary of Lucifer, and, and um, you know, he didn't dare He didn't dare despise Satan. He just said, the Lord rebuke thee. Uh, We saw that example in verse nine. But man, false teachers, (laughs) they shoot off their mouth without having real understanding of what's actually true. Verse 10 says, they speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally is brute beasts. In those things, they corrupt themselves. They're looking for satisfaction in the flesh. And then we finished up last time in verse 11. Uh, This warning against error begins. Woe unto them. That's what Jude exclaims. Woe unto them. For they have gone in the way of Cain. We saw that the way of Cain was envy against someone who did what's right before the Lord. He's envious against his little brother's offering being accepted and he kills him and then lies about the murder. This is the way of Cain. It's the way of man-made religion. They ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. We saw the heir of Balaam. He, you know, Balak wanted him to curse Israel. He couldn't, he just couldn't do it as a, as a prophet of the Lord and, and he really wanted that money. He wanted to get paid for cursing Israel and so he came up with an idea to um, get Israel to curse themselves and so he taught Balak what to do how to lead Israel into fornication so that God himself would deal with them. So the gains, you know, the heir of Balaam is teaching wrong in order to trip people up so you can get paid. Well, that's, a, that's a, I mean, we see that, you know, these, these uh, satellite and cable TV ministries are, are all about a prosperity gospel. 
And if you're struggling financially, it's because you don't have faith and, and the way you exercise your faith is you give out of your lack to me and then God will bless you tenfold, a hundredfold. And they make merchandise of people. Then we saw they're perished in the gainsaying of Kor. So Korah in your Old Testament, we saw what his era was. He was preaching, he was proclaiming so as to promote himself versus submitting to the structure that God had him in. And God took him out, right? Because he's sowing strife and division. The earth swallows him up. And so we saw, you know, Judah's warning us away from following these false teachers. And then today, in verses 12 and 13, we're gonna see that he gives us five pictures, five pictures of apostates, five illustrations to show us who they are and what they do. In verse 12, let's look at it. The first thing that we see is that these false teachers are actually betrayers. They're betrayers in that they're, they're brazenly deceptive. These apostates, verse 12, these are, these are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. The early believers had regular times where they met together around a meal. Uh, they were called love feasts or agape feasts. And they were a big deal, so get this down in your notes. You know, fellowship around food has always been a very important, very significant thing. It was a very big deal in ancient times. To sit at a table with someone implied fellowship and friendship. To break bread with another believer, okay? That, that is, there's something magic about eating together. There's just something that, 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 that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a statement, it's, it's a way of showing that we're sharing life together. Well, the ancients, okay, this was such a big deal for them. You know, you're eating with somebody, that's friendship. I heard that the ancient Orientals, for example, would not eat with someone they considered an enemy. Or let's say it's a friend that they're going to fire. Or maybe it's someone that they're planning on betraying. They would not eat with them. Uh, the greatest example of this concept of being in fellowship with God's people around food, but really you're working to undermine them. The greatest example of that in our Bible is who? Normally I tell you if you don't know the answer, it's Jesus, but in this case, the answer would be <laughs> Judas, right? I mean, talk about a betrayer who is doing it for personal gain. Yeah, it's Judas. I mean, Judas, his betrayal of Jesus. I mean, he's breaking bread with him with, with, with betrayal in his heart. Literally, Judas is the worst. I mean, it was so, the betrayal is so bad that his name forever literally means, it's synonymous with betrayer. When somebody betrays somebody else, what do they say? You, you Judas. They don't even use the word betrayer, do they? You Judas. Literally the worst. Okay, so remember, look, look at what we've seen recently. In verse eight, these apostates, they're filthy dreamers. So they live wrong, they act wrong, they speak evil of things that they don't understand. So they corrupt themselves, verse 10. They go in the way of Cain, they run greedily after error. They perish as a result. That's the pattern that we're seeing here in the book of Jude. You know, the people that you have fellowship with, to break your trust with them, it is really a, a worse kind of betrayal. We said this at the beginning of our study. You've got people who come in like they're with us, like they wanna be a part of us, but they're really here only for themselves. They don't wanna help, they don't wanna give, they only wanna take and break, and they point out problems in order to sow division and not reconciliation. So through warped, reprobate thinking, they seek to tear down and divide and derail what God is doing with his people in this place. And I've given you examples. And again, we, we, I mean, a great, a great example of this is we, you know, everybody that joins this church, we tell them up front who we are, what we're doing, and what we believe. Because MBT is not going to be a match for everybody. You know, if, the, if, if, this is not, if this local church is not a fit for you, be at peace. But be a part of a church somewhere, okay? We, 
we don't have, the only, the, only, the only way or the only reason that we would have to have you here is if God's got you here, okay? And if he's got you here, well then be in fellowship, okay? Don't be an engine of destruction. And so we walk everybody through our statement of faith. Here are our non-negotiables. If you can't submit to that, this isn't the church for you. And that's okay. Find the one that is. And so we go through our statement of faith and then not, 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 much, not, not too much time passes and, and we've got a lady that's so upset that she can't teach with her ESV that God's people are going through the time of great tribulation, that we need to be looking for the Antichrist instead of looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Comes in like they're with us, like they wanna be a part of us, that they wanna minister with us, but it's really with another agenda to make merchandise of God's people. Paul describes them this way in Romans chapter three, verse 13. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their throat is an open grave. <laughs> like, if you connect with that mouth, it's a grave. That's how Paul describes it. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of snakes, the poison of asps, is under their lips. I mean, wow what's coming out of them. It's not life-giving, it's destructive. A great example would be the betrayal of David. In Psalm 41, verse nine, he says, yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. And again, David is speaking prophetically of Judas's betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 40, 41, nine. But think about 2 Samuel. I'll give you some homework if you wanna check this out. 2 Samuel, chapters 14 through 17, you read about the betrayal of Absalom. And then, I mean, on top of Absalom betraying him, lifting up his heel against him to destroy him, you've got Ahithophel, a trusted advisor who ate with, I mean, these are, these are men that sat at David's table with, with, with destruction in their heart. If you're gonna lead people in ministry, if you're gonna be a part of building God's kingdom, you're gonna, you're actually gonna experience this. I've experienced it personally. It, it is, it's a special kind of hurt when you've got people that you think, I mean, I've had people who I just knew were with me, that we were in ministry together, that sat at my table countless times eating bread with me. Like, not just bread, homemade bread. Like homemade rolls, okay? Like the good stuff and we're breaking bread together and we're actually working to undermine the ministry. And there's no surprise, look at verse 12 again. Notice that they're with you. Notice that the posers are with you. And you just need to, you just need to know that this is always gonna be the case. The, the mixed multitude is always a problem for any people of faith. Look at Numbers 11. You've got a story in verses one through three where God's people are complaining. God hears it, he doesn't like it. So he disciplines them. The fire of the Lord's burning among them and, and they're crying out to Moses and so Moses prays and then the fire's quenched. Okay, so then right after that, verse four, look at this, and the mixed multitude that was among them. So they just saw, don't speak evil against the Lord. But that doesn't stop the mixed multitude. The very next thing that they do is they start whining. The mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting and the children of Israel, everybody gets caught up in it. The children of Israel also wept and said, who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. I mean, that does all sound like good grub, right? That's good eating. But now our soul is dried away. Notice their flesh is being provided for. But their soul is just withering away because what? They have to eat bread from heaven? Our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna, this bread from heaven. God's baking up our food himself, okay? And that's not enough. What is it? Manna, what is it? It's bread from heaven. The mixed multitude, God's provision is never enough. There's always a reason to sow division in order to get something that's, God, I mean, God hasn't designed it, he hasn't planned it, he hasn't given it to you, but you're gonna, you know, so help you, you, and by your grace, you're gonna get it. 
And look at that, I mean, the grace of God was just manifest. They were murmuring, they were complaining. God was disciplining them. And the fire is now quenched. Look at the grace of God. And what do they do? The very next thing that they do is they wanna turn it to lasciviousness. We saw that in Jude verse four. And to do that, again, they have to deny the Lord, even our Lord Jesus Christ. See, they're always with us. They look like us, they sound like us, they, they, they pose as a, as a part of the people of faith. These apostates, listen to what they're saying. You'll pick up on it. They're always explaining away their need, our need to submit to the word of God, to not wait on his promises. And this is what it'll sound like. Um, I know what the Bible says, but here are my circumstances, here's what's going on in my life that makes it so that I don't have to just surrender and submit to the word of the Lord. I know what the Bible says, but here's my special circumstances that excludes me from accountability to scripture. It'll, that, that's, that's what will come out of their mouths. That's what the mixed multitude, that's what the false teachers do. Uh, the word of God applies to another in an ideal scenario or an ideal situation, but, but, but anything that comes after that but is gonna stink. That's just how that works. I mean, how else are, if you're Satan, how else are you going to overthrow a people of faith? How are you gonna do it? You have to insert some tares among the wheat. That's what you have to do. You have to, you have to make sure that the multitude is mixed. You've got people of faith and then you've got posers. That's the way it works. And this is what Jude is warning, warning us against. It's like the Trojan horse. Everybody knows the story of the Trojan horse, right? The Greeks are outside the walls of Troy and they can't take the city. And so they build this big wooden Trojan horse and they leave it before the gate and then they withdraw. And Troy thinks, oh, you know, these guys finally saw the light. Look at the offering that they're offering up. Look at this, look at this token of our superiority that they're leaving before us. And, and so they bring it in with a lot of celebration and what they don't know, nobody thinks to check out its construction or why they would have done something like, like who leaves a giant horse at the gate when you, you know, you're admitting defeat? I mean, who does that? And, and so they bring it in, have a big party and everybody goes to bed, belly's full. And in the middle of the night, the soldiers inside that horse snuck out and they opened the city gates to the Greek army. Troy fell from the inside. Troy fell from the inside via some people, by some things, by some people who wanted division, who wanted to open them up to outside forces. That's how it works. Paul describes this function, this process this way. Titus chapter one, verse 16. They profess that they know God. They seem legit, but it's a Trojan horse. They profess that they know God, but in works deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Notice Jude, he describes them this way, okay? These, these apostates, they're feeding themselves without fear. Now remember, they're at, you know, God's people are fellowshipping around food. They're at a love feast. And, and, and then <laughs> these self-serving apostates, they're pigging out. I mean, we're, 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 we're preaching in Jude. Okay, so we're having uh, Domino's pizza after service. We're not really, just go with the illustration, okay? There's no Domino's pizza after service. Oh, we're having Domino's pizza after service. We did walking tacos last week, okay? I mean, come on. So. So there'll be Domino's pizza after service, and you're like, Domino's, finally. We've been, I mean, it's all junk, by the way, but oh, you know, you know these people, we're always serving Pizza Hut and Papa John's. Sorry, that's, what, that's what's close. Uh, Domino, that's my favorite. And so while I'm praying, you run downstairs and you pile your plate, you got enough for now, later, and, and, and lunch in the middle of the week. And you don't care that somebody else is gonna to get to the line and find no food because it's not about your brother, it's all about you, getting what you deserve, getting what you want. People have a bless me, give me, I deserve attitude. I mean, some people only serve themselves. They pig out without fear. There's no, there's no consideration of their brother's or their sister's need. So here's a pro tip. 
whenever your church, your small group, your ministry team, whenever they have an activity that's, that's around food, right, that's, that's functioning around food, make sure everyone goes through the line before you go a second time, right? Has everybody ate? Has everybody had something to eat? Because I'm still hungry and I was thinking about getting something, but I don't want to rip anybody off, right? Make sure everybody has had something before you get in line again. Here's a bonus tip. Go last and then just eat what's, just eat what's left over. Say, well, if I do that, I'll miss out. I mean, I won't get the big piece of chicken. Yeah, that's true. Your neighbor will get the, I mean, can't you prefer your neighbor ahead of yourself? This once in a blue moon, let them have the big piece of chicken. Yeah, you'll miss out from time to time, but your brother won't. Praise the Lord. You know, in the early days, our church, we would have potluck services. This is before we remodeled the basement. So downstairs in the basement, it was just this big giant room. And on baptism, we scheduled once a month, baptism Sundays and then a potluck lunch after service. And in the early days, okay, I can't tell you how many times we'd, we'd conclude service and I'd have a line of people down front to talk to me. And I would, I would, I would minister, I'd give counsel, I'd pray with people and, and we'd get wrapped up up here. I'd go downstairs to the potluck to join my family in fellowship around food and there's like, you know, a few scraps left and a few crock pots. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, nobody thinks the pastor's gotta eat? Like, okay, that's the flesh talking. But in reality, look at me. I can afford to miss a few meals, okay? It's not the end of the world that all that's left is a, you know, some, like I, like five green beans in the bottom of a crock pot. That's not a big deal. There was a similar problem in Corinth. I'll give this to you as homework. Read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. Here you have the Lord's table. It's the Lord's Supper. God's people are meeting together, and you've got some people pigging out. They're bringing sumptuous feasts, and they're pigging out in front of people that don't have anything to eat. And Paul rebukes them sharply. Spurgeon, when he comments on this, he says, I do wonder when I look at the text that, some, that these people should feed themselves without fear. I suppose this may allude to the love feast, but also to the Lord's Supper. How can an ungodly man, how can an ungodly man, or how an ungodly man can drink the wine that typifies the blood of Christ when he is all the while crucifying Christ? I cannot understand how he can break bread at the Lord's table when he is spending his life with harlots or gaining money by dishonesty. I cannot comprehend, but sin is an incomprehensible thing. Some of the best Christians who come to the Lord's table come there in great fear and trembling. And I have known some who have, who have had an undoubted right to be there, half afraid to come. Yet those very persons who have a holy fear lest they should come amiss, are those who really ought to come. Uh, the proper response is to tremble in consideration of the Lord and your brethren. Okay, let's keep going, verse 12. We find out in the second illustration that these false teachers, they're really bums. Apostates, they profess great benefit in following, but really they're just disappointing, okay? He describes them as clouds without water. Look at the second part of verse 12. Clouds they are without water, carried about with winds. So, you know, the false teacher comes with all the answers, but really they're carried about with every wind of doctrine. They look like ministers of Christ, promising help, promising life, and in reality, they can't deliver. There's no life, they're frauds, they're good for nothing. They're very busy, but they're not actually accomplishing the mission. They bring false hope, a false sense of, of, of being engaged in that which is godly. And, and they've just got God's people off course. There's no fruit that remains. So ultimately it's disappointment. Okay, now clouds, we had a bunch of clouds come in this morning. What did they bring? Clouds are always supposed to bring Water, a cloud that doesn't bring water, is, what good is that to you? I mean, every once in a while, a cloud without water will at least provide some shade. Uh, so there's a benefit 
if you look for it. But, but, but really, they're supposed to bring water. God's people need water. They need the water of Jesus. Oh, that we would have clouds that would bring the water, the word of life, the word of Christ. Ministers that bring the person, the life, and the word of Christ. Jesus, in John 4.14, talks about this living water. He says, but whoso drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That's the water that ministers ought to be piping to God's people, right? We ought to be in the business of getting that water into the, the lives, the souls of men. Jesus, that's what he does. He sanctifies and cleanses his bride with the washing of water by the word, Ephesians 5, 26. So a cloud that brings its opinions versus the word of God is not gonna produce life. It's gonna produce drought, spiritual drought. We wanna bring the words, the water of life to a spiritually thirsty people. So Paul tells us how to do it in Ephesians 4. Okay, in Ephesians 4 we find out that every member of the church functions to, to speak the word of God into the lives of every other member, to build them up, to edify their faith. Okay, so what do we do then? Verse 17, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. They're, they're, lost people live deluded. They're pursuing life, success in the now. And they're wasting their life. It's, it, it comes to nothing. They're un, verse 18, their understanding is darkened. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. They're in false, self-serving, empty, vain, self-serving pursuits. And look at the reason why, verse 19. Oh, they turn the grace of God to lasciviousness who being past feeling have given themselves over until lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So what's the solution, verse 20? But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off the way the lost live, right? You put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. The lost, if they're religious, uh, they just, you know, that, they just use that for a license to sin. They're all about, you know, they're gonna continue in sin, grace is gonna abound. No, put that off, because it's corruption, it's sourced in corruption, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Wash in the water of his word. Put on the new man, right, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. All right, then look at the last phrase in verse 12. We see that false teachers, apostates are blighted because they're spiritually dead. That's how they're revealed. They're described as trees whose fruit, whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. So there's no life in a false teacher's word. And what they do produce, the fruit that they do produce, it comes to nothing, it rots. It's all, the fruit is all dead and trespasses in sin, Ephesians 2, 1. It's a, it's a manifestation of the wages of sin being death in Romans 6, 23. So here's a red flag. If everybody that you end up discipling, let's say you're a discipler, you're a Bible study leader, um, you're, you're a ministry re leader, you're taking the word of God and you're leading God's people in it. Okay, if everyone you disciple ends up misfiring or they end up divisive, divisive, they end up contentious, that's the fruit of you as a tree. That's the fruit of you, tree, okay? Everything reproduces after its kind. You know, not everyone, I don't wanna discourage you, not everyone that you disciple will turn out. Some people you'll, man, you'll do everything right or close to right. Uh, you'll invest, you'll pour, you'll pour your heart, your life into this person, you'll labor to give them the word, the word of God and, and they'll turn out apostate. I mean, that happens. But some should turn out. Some should turn out as a discipler. What's happening? We say this all the time. Discipleship is the process where a mature believer, the spiritual life that they have with God in his word, in worship, 
in ministry, in fellowship. That is then transplanted, that is then reproduced in the life of the believer. Everything reproduces after its kind. If all of your fruit is rotting, well, something's wrong with you as a tree. See, so many of God's people look like functional ministers. They look like they're gonna be a help to the ministry, but they end up being a source of corruption. And everybody that they disciple, they're just sowing discord and distrust and division. They're trashing the other ministries in the church. They're trashing other members of the church. And they're sowing into that disciple. Um, really, it's a, it's a heart attitude that Satan can now use to do much damage, not just in their own life, but to see it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And to see that dysfunction then spread throughout the church. The mixed multitude is always among us. There are always tares among the wheat. You know, some trees, you water them, you feed them, you work them. You do all this labor for nothing. They just never give you fruit. There's nothing in return. And so Jesus says what will happen if that's the case. Look at Matthew 7, 15. I mean, Jesus himself gives a grave warning. He says, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they just want to make merchandise of you. Inwardly, they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? So, even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits shall you know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, read that and tremble. Dispensationally, we know that we, as trees, cannot be cast into eternal hellfire. Okay, there's actually a, he's describing the practical, the practical function of what takes place in a vineyard. They burn the trees that don't produce fruit. That's what he's talking about there. But don't miss the message. They're being removed from the equation. And God does have the right to take his children home. I mean, he reserves that right. But he says, by your fruit, that's how you know. What kind of tree are you? Well, what fruit is being produced out of your life? I use this silly illustration all the time because it helps, it helps it to stick into the hearts and minds of people. Uh, you can say you're an apple tree, I mean an apple tree, all day long. I'm an apple tree, I'm an apple tree. But if all we're seeing come off you as a tree, if all we're seeing is dingleberries, well then I got news for you. You're a poopy tree. You're a dingleberry bush. I mean, you can say I'm an apple tree, but if all that's coming is poo, well then, okay, there's no such thing as a dingleberry bush, but you get what I'm saying. Some of you are like, dingleberry? What's a dingleberry? Uh, check out some farm humor. We ought to tremble at that. Listen to Jesus' warning, Matthew 15, 13. But he answered and said, every plant, everyone, every plant which my Father, my heavenly Father, hath not planted shall be rooted up. And that's exactly what Jews are saying. These are fruitless trees. There's no fruit. They're twice dead. All they're doing is reproducing death plucked up by the roots. You know, in Matthew 15, Jesus is warning against the Pharisees that were right then rejecting him, rejecting his word. But it's more than them. Jesus said every plant that does this will be plucked up. They'll be rooted up. Look at verse 13. The fourth illustration is that of the sea. Their false teachers are boiling. They're, they're very dangerous. Verse 13 says, raging waves of the sea, boiling out their own shame. So here we see false teachers, right? How, how do waves get, how, how do raging waves get spun up? I mean, how does that happen? Oh yeah, there's these hard blowing winds that will take place. So here the picture is of raging waves that overturn you. You know, the waves of the sea are very powerful. They can be an incredibly deadly force. 
I was the college pastor at then the Kansas City Baptist Temple, and I took a bunch of young adults down to Costa Rica to help with the church plant there. And of course, you know, you go to Costa Rica, you have to take one day on your trip and go to the beach. And, um, you know, Will Mata didn't love me yet, and so he didn't help me learn how to surf. One of my life's goals is to learn how to surf. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna hang 10 at some point in my life, okay? And so I walk up to the surf, surf shack and I say, hey, I wanna rent a surfboard. And uh, I, you know, I've never surfed, I wanna, I wanna learn how to surf. And I now know that the guy was evil and he just wanted to have a good laugh about the idiot from America, but he gave me a surfboard this, this long. It was, it was about the length of my body. Okay, that's what elite surfers surf on. What I needed was about a 15-foot raft. That's what I needed to learn on, okay? But he didn't give me that. He gave me this little, you know, aggressive surfboard. I spent the entire day getting the tar beat out of me. I mean, I kind of like barely got up a couple times, was just enough. The whole thing's insidious. You think you're gonna get up and you're gonna surf, and it's like, ah, I'm doing it, boom. And then these waves, man, they just kept grinding me, just, just smashing me along the bottom of the ocean. I'm just getting ground into the sand. I mean, all afternoon long, it's, it's, it's like that. And then the, the, surf shop, I mean, the, the surf shop jerk didn't tell me I needed a surf shirt. Later that afternoon, I, I come up for a rest and, and there's, it just come to find out the surfboard had ground my nipples off. <laughs> like the, 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 the like I, I mean, I was, I, there's two streams of blood coming down my body, you know? Everybody's like, what happened to you? And like, oh, the devil, the devil's had a hold of me all day long. <laughs> well, that's how apostasy works. When every wind of false teaching is blowing, remember Ephesians 4? Right, the apostate's teaching is damaging. They're so brazen in their rebellion. I mean, they speak, tr- they speak lies like it's the gospel truth. They foam out their shame, so beware. Paul describes it this way, Philippians 3.19. Their end is their destruction. Whose end is destruction? Their God is their belly. Whose God is their belly? Whose glory is in their shame? They're bold about their error. Romans 2.21. Thou, th- thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Proverbs 11 tells why this happens. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. But with the lowly is wisdom. See these apostates in their pride, they're very bold. They, you know, a lot of people can bluff their way into respect. Uh, they can bluff their way into positions of trust and authority. And so they, you know, in their pride, they promote themselves as having all the answers. They've got it all figured out. They're so confident. They seem so powerful. They seem invincible. But rest assured, they will be shown shameful. And they're among us. You might be tempted to look at your neighbor and be like, are you one, you know? Don't start any fights. I'm just telling you, they're here. And until they're shown shameful, they're very dangerous to others. Since we're talking about an illustration you know, centered around the sea, uh, here's another one. 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul tells Timothy, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning the faith have made shipwreck. They've wrecked the faith of others, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So here's an example of some men who are with the church. They have authority, they've got an eldership in the church, and they're actually functioning like rocks, hidden rocks in the waves, like hidden reefs in the waves, and and people can't see it, and they end up capsized in their faith. So what's the solution? Brothers and sisters, I mean, if if all of us will take this to heart, it'll it'll do us well. 2 Corinthians 4.2, we are to renounce, right, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, 
not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We ought to tremble any time we take up the word of God. We ought to tremble that we're saying what God said and we're not substituting for the word of God our opinions because there is a, I mean, the last illustration is the worst. Look at, look at, look at how verse 13 ends. Uh, these false teachers are described as being in blackness. Uh, these apostates are eternally doomed. It describes them as wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. You know, in your Bible, and we've already made this case here in the study of Job, but stars in your Bible can equate to angels. You see that in the book of Job. Uh, you actually see it illustrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 40 through 41. Angels are equated to stars. They're described as stars. But, angel, but, but stars are also physical objects in our universe, okay? The physical stars were created by God in Genesis chapter one, verse 16. And according to verse 14, he made them to tell time. Genesis 1:14. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide day from the night, the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So whenever you look up in the night sky and you see all those lights, that's not a host of angels there. Those are huge balls of burning gases, right? That's, that's what you see in the firmament, in the cosmos. They're there to tell time. They're there to proclaim the times. What time is it? What's going on right now? That's their job. Okay, so more than that, historically then, because these stars had a set course, uh, historically, they were used to navigate the way, right? Stars used to be the only way to navigate great distances. Any star, then, without a set course, could not be trusted to navigate by. See, if you pick the wrong star as a guide, you will get lost. And some of these stars are wandering stars. And just so, some Bible experts cannot be trusted. Why? Because they're wandering stars. Their course is not set. So much damage is done when preachers get a following and then in their 50s, then in their 60s, they come to some new doctrinal understanding and they end up, shipwreck they end up shipwrecking the faith of many. People thought they knew what the Bible said. They thought they knew the direction. They thought they knew the mission. They thought they knew the objectives. And then the pastor comes up with some new doctrine, some new way to interpret the word of God. And it ends up discouraging people and they just end up playing church. Go from being fruitful in ministry to just attending services. Let me just tell you, so many of you, you're, you're here to learn the word of God. I'm not saying that, that you're not gonna keep learning doctrine. I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying you're not gonna keep growing in doctrine, okay? But in terms of the fundamentals of the faith, you better know them before you open your mouth. Right, before you, presume, before you presume to teach others, you better get the goods. Learn what is right, learn what the word of God is revealing and teaching before you open your mouth and presume to instruct others. Students of LFBI, make sure you're learning the data set that we're giving. These are fundamental truths. Figure out what the word of God is saying. Come to some set conclusions because you know what the book says. Come to some, con some conclusions before you, before you attempt, before you deign to instruct others. Know your stuff before you open your mouth. Is this making sense? Here's what stars should teach. If a star is set in its course, look at Psalms 19. This is what the stars should teach. This is just powerful, it's beautiful. Psalms 19, verse one. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. 
So the stars, the message that they are preaching that anyone can hear, anyone can understand if they'll just stop and look and listen and hear what the cosmos is preaching. There is a creator and he has a bride and there is a course that he is following. That's what stars should be proclaiming. Wandering stars don't do that. Look at what else stars should teach. Here's what stars must teach, verse seven. You ought to come, I mean, if you're following the message of the stars, it's, you're, you're gonna find out the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Teachers that have, right, preachers that have a set course, they're pointing people to Christ and the word of Christ. They're teaching good doctrine. They're not going with every wind of new insights and truths and, I mean, just all of these, these new truths, falsely so-called. Brothers and sisters, tremble at the idea of leading other people in a false course. And then for those of you that are growing and learning, tremble at the idea of joining rebels that are really nobodies in rebellion and destruction. God takes their offense very seriously. Notice the grave warning here. Jude says, to them, they're stars. They're supposed to be light givers. Instead, to them is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. You know, because of their rebellion against God, God gives Egypt a taste of this horrible condition. In Exodus 10, 21, the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt even darkness which may be felt. Have you ever felt darkness before? It's hard to find on this earth darkness that can be felt. If you ever get a chance to take a cave tour in some of these big caves, they'll take you deep into the earth and then they'll turn off all the lights. And there is no light in that cavern. You know, even when you think it's pitch black outside, there's a little bit of light. It's hard to get away from light on the surface of the earth. But in a cavern, they cut that light, you feel like you're buried. <laughs> I mean, you, that is darkness, I think, that you can kind of feel a little bit. I mean, it is a surreal experience. You can't see your hand right in front of your face. You can't see anyone. You are cut off in darkness. And so God says, let, let Egypt have a taste of that, Moses. So he stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. They're cut off from everyone, trapped in darkness. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Oh, they're still connected with the God of promises, the God of their, the word that they have from him. These warnings, they show up over and over and over again in Scripture. Proverbs 21, 16. The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. As a bird that wandereth from her nest, 27, 8. So as a man that wandereth from his place. 2 Peter 2, 15. We've already seen this. False teachers, right? Forsaken the right way, gone astray. Following the way of Balaam, the son of Boser who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Why is Jude warning against false teachers? Why is he giving this warning so strongly? Well, this is what we're gonna see next time. The reason why is retribution is coming. Uh, verses 14 through 16, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000s of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts and their mouth speaking great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. People who look like big shots speak, I mean, just spewing nonsense. The Lord's coming to straighten them out. And that ought to make us tremble. Okay, think about it. Read Ephesians chapter four. Read Colossians chapter three. Read 1 Corinthians 12. Read Romans chapter 12. 
over and over again, what you find out, the Bible clearly says, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God designed you, he made you, he ordained you to be a minister. His expectation of you is that you know his word and then you know how to use it in the lives of people. God made you, he called you to be a minister of his word in a local church body. Rejoice at that, but at the same time, you ought to tremble just a little bit. Tremble at the idea of being unfaithful and and participating in the propagation of apostasy. You ought to tremble at that. Brothers and sisters, false teachers will always be among us. Don't be one, don't listen to one. The only way we're gonna identify error, the only way we're gonna identify false teaching, apostasy, is if we know the truth, amen? Father, I come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, I'm asking that, Lord, you'd help us to be a sober people, uh, that we would tremble to misrepresent you, that we would tremble to, to substitute for your word just our ideas, our opinions. Lord, you have spoken, you said what you mean, you, you've meant what you've said, and so, Lord, help us to do the work that you called us to. We wanna to study to show ourselves approved unto you. We wanna be workmen in your word so that we won't be ashamed. We don't wanna foam out our shame just blathering about things that we don't understand. Help us to be a people that do the work. Help us to be a Berean people who search the scriptures to find out what is true, what is so. Lord, if there's any here today that do not know you as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that today you'd prick their heart and you'd help them to see that you love them, that you've fallen all over yourself. You've literally, Christ gave his life in order to purchase us back from our sin that separates us from you. Lord, I'm trusting that you will have your way with every heart, every life, every soul here this morning. And I give you praise for it all in Jesus' name, amen.